It's really good to worship with you and to be with you today. Thanks for tuning in. As Alicia's already said, it's a, it's a privilege to have you invite us onto your phone, onto your TV, onto your computer, and wherever you're at. We're singing about being a good, good father, and, and some people might question how can you sing about that when there's a pandemic going on in the world, there's a huge protests uh, stemming out of, out of racism, there's been murders and plane crashes all in the last of a number of months. <clears throat> how can you be so sure God is good? Well, God is good because he comes to us in our brokenness. And racism really is a brokenness issue. These traumatic events that have stemmed out of the horrible and tragic death of George Floyd has brought a lot of things to the surface and to light. Racism sucks. And it sucks because it's, it's sin and it comes out of brokenness. But yet... That is the hope we have in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has come to redeem brokenness, to heal us of our sin, and that we get to be a part of that both by receiving it and by sharing it in the world around us. I want to say up front and acknowledge openly that I have been part of the problem, that in my own life I've been an active part by harboring prejudice at different points in my life. Sometimes I have uh, been part of the problem by living in my privilege without acknowledging or recognizing the struggle that so many others have to live in and the pressures and the oppression that they live under. And perhaps the greatest way I have personally been a part of the problem of racism is by being silent when others are expressing their own bias or prejudice. And I'm truly sorry for that. I repent to God and I repent to you and I, I don't claim to fully understand the effects of racism or mine on the world around you or what yours might be in your world, but I understand that it has had effects on many, many people and that many people have had it to endure great hardship, both because of what they've experienced personally and both because of the environment and society they have to live in that has experienced that racism. I want to make a greater difference in the world. I don't just want to talk, I want my actions to speak louder than words over the next period of time. And I want our church to continue to do the same. I'm so grateful for this church and what we've been able to do to try to provide a safe place for people of all ethnicities and all backgrounds so that we can be a safe place for all people. And I know we're trying to do that, I don't think we've always been perfect, but that's where we want to head to. If you're someone who's experienced racism in your life and the effects of it, I want to say sorry that you have had to go through that in your life and for the extra difficulties and challenges that that has brought on. You see, the idea of racial reconciliation and living as brothers and sisters isn't really just a societal issue that's impacting the life of the church. But actually, I think it's opposite. It's actually a church issue and a kingdom of God issue. And we as the church should be affecting the society around us. That in this broken world caused by sin, that we could actually have fulfill our call to bring hope to life. That we can actually be helping bring redemption and wholeness to the world around us. Where there are people or there are people that have been treated unjustly and people that are hurting it is called of the people of God to step into those messy and broken situations, to bring hope and to bring help. 
for the past two decades, we have been trying to walk this journey and learn and grow. And so I thank you for your patience with us. And I thank you to you, the Rock Church, for being a part of that journey as we have these discussions and we have talked about it over the years and we want to keep growing in it, that we'd be positive influence in the world around us. I want to celebrate that God has made us a diverse world and a diverse people. And I thank you for being a part of the Rock Church, no matter what makeup and background you come from. If you are listening today and your skin is not my color skin and your heritage and background is not like mine and my skin and my background is not like yours, I want to say that God loves you and I love you and we love you. And I look forward to moving forward with you. And where we have failed on this journey, I am sorry and want to apologize. Please forgive us. Where we can do better or be different, Please tell us and help us and share in that journey that way. And as we follow Christ together, let us love each other well and celebrate what God is doing in our midst and what he wants to do. One way that we can all change is to have a better understanding of what God's heart is towards this issue and what the Bible is saying, what his word tells us about justice. After all, if there's an issue that breaks God's heart and is dear to him, then it needs to break our heart and be dear to us. And so I want to show you a video that comes from the, our friends at the Bible Project about this issue of justice and trust that it will help enlighten and give us fresh understanding today. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. 
Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That video really spoke to me. It's been shown to, to Bibleville kids through online, online Bibleville, and I trust that it ministered to you today. To know that righteousness is a call of God on his people's life to live out 
justly and to walk humbly and to bring blessing to the world around us. As we become like him, as we draw close to God, we're drawing closer to each other and we can be open to each other. We can be receptive to each other no matter what one's heritage and background and how different that may be. So let's follow after him closely and let's invite Holy Spirit to convict us from where we've been part of the problem, both individually perhaps or part of a a society that allows things to go ahead that should never be allowed. Let us ask Holy Spirit to root out racism and injustice in our world beginning with us so that we can choose to be like our father that we just sang sang about, that he's a good, good father, that we could really be good, good brothers and sisters towards each other and in this world because we are following after his heart. The staff joked this week when they heard that Leah was preaching, they said, you've called out the big guns. And so uh, it's a privilege for me to invite Leah to come out and uh, I want to pray for her and bless her. God has given my lovely wife a gift of faithfulness. Uh, This summer we celebrate 24 years of marriage and if the Girl Scouts had a badge for faithfulness, she should definitely get it. And uh, she's been faithful to the call God has on her life and so I'm really excited for what she has for you. Thank you, Leah, for preaching today and I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love for us and God, I thank you that you are faithful and that because that's in your nature, there's a hope that we can be faithful and we can follow follow after you. Mm -hmm. And so, Heavenly Father, I ask that as Leah speaks today, that you would anoint her words, that your presence would be upon her, and that whatever room or place people are in listening to what she has to share, that it would be impactful and your spirit would go with every word. In Jesus' name, amen. Go get them, honey. Thank you. Good morning, Rock Church. I am so privileged to be uh, speaking on faithfulness today, I have enjoyed the fruits and all of the fun with fruit. And um, each time I was thinking about how it all worked into the theme of faithfulness. So I have been the one blessed to come later on in the fruits. So I want to tell you a story about um, a particular fruit that I learned about at a women's gathering in the US in um, Atlanta, Georgia, just outside. It was through a daily audio Bible um, retreat. I listen to the daily audio Bible every day and it's part of the encouragement that I receive online and I get to hear it, which is a blessing to my eye that doesn't always cooperate for reading. So I was at this retreat and one lady from Australia came to sit at our table at lunchtime. And um, so there was a group of us and she started talking about how she had bought a ranch a few years back and she discovered an unrecognizable tree on this ranch. So she researched it and she found out that it was a fruit tree that could produce what is called black sapotes. And it's a fruit in the persimmons family. I had never heard about it. And it's about five to 10 centimeters. It looks a lot like a tomato. Um, It's got inedible skin that turns from an olive green color to a deep yellow green when it's ripe. And then when it's ripe, get this, the flavor, the color, and the texture 
tastes like chocolate pudding. So she's telling us this and all our heads shoot up because we're all going a fruit that tastes like chocolate. That is our dream come true, healthy chocolate. So she explained that when she bought um, this, this farm, um, that she was so excited and she started telling all her friends that she was soon to be enjoying this chocolate fruit and that she would have them over and they would have this celebration of chocolate pudding fruit. So uh, she diligently watered and she pruned this tree and she checked it daily to find out if there were any flowers or buds or any tiny fruits growing the, the way the experts said to do it. The first year went by and she was disappointed to see no fruit. She kept tending it and watering it. And then just a few months before this, the conference that we were attending there, the, there was a bud that turned into a flower and then it started to grow an actual fruit. She watched it grow for those days leading up, but it just wasn't quite ready to be harvested. But she had to get on the plane and fly to the US to meet us at the women's gathering. So she actually left this black sapote hanging on the tree. So uh, we were all just totally engaged in her story and we were worried instantly about this fruit. We said, uh, is someone looking after it or, or what's happening? And she said, well, I decided I, I would pray over it before I left. And she said to the Lord, this is your fruit. It feels like my baby and my very, very first fruit. And you have taught me about being patient and faithful, Lord, through the tending of this tree. She said she waited, she watched. She trusted and she wasn't giving up on it or ignoring it. She tended it faithfully, watering and pruning. So Lord, she said, if you want me to enjoy it, you will have to preserve it until I get home from Australia. So we're all just shocked that that was the end of the story. Um, we didn't know what it was gonna happen to this chocolate pudding fruit. So we asked her, what are you gonna do with this one little fruit? She said, I'm really considering having a small gathering like a first fruits communion time with a few of her closest girlfriends just to remember and give thanks for what God brought into her life. It was just a beautiful picture and a celebration of faithfulness to me and I've never forgot that. Also, I am a big lover of chocolate, so. The thought of God creating something that would taste like chocolate that I could eat as a fruit is an incredible gift. So let's talk faithfulness. By the way, I could not find a black sapote anywhere in Saskatoon or even to uh, get shipped here. So we can't have the direct fun with fruit today. But later I will have fun eating my chocolate. Faithfulness is a cultivated fruit, but it's not cultivated by us. We give ourselves to God and he tends it. He grows it and he produ produces that fruit so it can be enjoyed by us and those around us. 
So just as my Australian friend tended her chocolate pudding fruit, I believe there are three keys to tending the fruit of faithfulness. So each of them come to us as an invitation straight from God. I just want to start by saying that faithfulness as a word has really been rolling around in my head. And so the root word obviously is faith. And that represents belief. We choose to believe or we choose to be full of faith. When we move into faithfulness, that's kind of the action. That's the fruit that comes out of full of faith. So the three things, starting with number one, we can meditate. We begin by meditating on God's great faithfulness. He is truly faithful. It's a firm foundation for our lives. And how do we know this? How do we really know that he's faithful? Well, we start at God's word because he says that he is faithful. He will be faithful and he has been faithful. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, He is the rock. His works are perfect. And in all his ways, they are just. A faithful God who does not who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So we meditate on that truth, acknowledging and accepting that our God is faithful. It's a choice that we put our faith in God. I find that silence and solitude and stillness are such key ingredients for me to believe in the faithfulness of God. When I meditate on his word and I let it seep into my spirit, his truth grows and miraculously it produces fruit. So number two, we can remember. We choose to remember, just like Lamentations 3 verse 19 and 20 says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. So this is such an emotionally mature response to pain. Um, struggle and hardship, we can choose to acknowledge it. When we acknowledge the pain of the past, we don't ignore it and we don't stuff it. When we offer it to a faithful God, he heals us and neutralizes the pain of that memory. This totally changes our perception and our faith can be restored so that we do not have to fear future pain and hardship. We will always have that future pain and hardship. I am one that has experienced that kind of freedom and I am so thankful. I often even encourage the Her Story speakers to share the depth of the struggle and the pain, not to glorify it, but rather to remember that it was real, not minimizing through it all, and we are not consumed. Lamentations goes on to say in verse 21, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that's the, the old hymn, The Great is Thy Faithfulness, that often runs through my mind. We receive our faithful God when we remember that his faithfulness is and was new every morning. 
This is how we remember. So number three is actually just uh, remind or repeat. We circle back. We circle back because there will always be new struggles or pain while we live on this earth. So it's an invitation to faithfulness to go back to step one and two so that we meditate on his word. We remember that God is faithful and what he's done in our personal lives. And that helps us remember that he never fails. He is faithful and we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. If I repeatedly take the time to look for how God has been faithful, he reveals this to my heart. We even tell ourselves just as this passage says in the following verse, Lamentations 3:24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And then we wait. We wait. Just as was said in the patience fruit by Bob Williamson, he so well uh, said that, that we wait on him. We choose to wait on him because he is faithful. I want to tell you a story about what happened uh, last summer. One Sunday after church, Dallas, my very faithful husband, Brooklyn, our amazing and beautiful daughter, and Hannah, our good friend, who is like a daughter, who has a gift of worship, actually, went to St. Paul's Hospital. So we went to pray for a young man. And as we waited for the nurses to treat him, we went into a large common area to wait. There was a piano there. And I thought, well, maybe I should go play something. The girls are here. We could sing something together. But I hesitated because I was unsure if it would be disturbing the patients in the room and the families that were sitting there. But Dallas encouraged us to go for it. So I asked a nearby family if it would be okay if we played and sang. And they excitedly said, yes, please. So we began playing and singing. A moment later, the family brought their father, who was in a wheelchair. We later learned that this man was in his 80s and receiving treatment for cancer. Um, he had spent some weeks in the hospital, and they didn't know how long he had left. And these were his final days. So um, he began asking us for certain songs to be sung and played. And the song that was his favorite was God is So Good. So he sat in his chair with tears streaming down his face, with his hands raised up in the air and his family surrounding him, singing and crying and thanking us. It was worship truly for me in spirit and in truth. The son then explained that he had been unable to go to his church for months and he had been telling them how much he missed worship and prayed that he could hear those familiar songs again. It was such a tender moment. He had waited for his faithful God. And God showed up for him personally. And in true God fashion, he used it to bring others, us, encouragement as well. 
So we kept playing and singing and many more patients and families gathered around singing and crying and listening. And we then prayed for the whole room. For God to come to these people, we asked him to bring comfort, to bring joy in the midst of pain. And we were all struck with the fact that this was not our doing. We played and sang, but our faithful God had answered a dying man's prayer just at the right time. And we had the privilege of being a part of God's answer to him. The man's son found us later and we were leaving the hospital. And through tears, he thanked us over and over for bringing encouragement to them as a family. It was just as much an encouragement to me. So we have this invitation to grow in faithfulness. So is faithfulness love or duty? As Randy Frazee says, our best motivation for this choice, faithfulness, is our love for him, for God, and the knowledge that he always does what is best for us. Our God is perfectly faithful. But humanly speaking, who comes to your mind when you think of faithfulness? Well, I think of my husband, Dallas. He, as, said, as he said before, we've been married just about 24 years, and he has walked with me faithfully through thick and thin. He has also pastored the Rock Church faithfully for 25 years. He is a faithful kind of guy. He chooses to have faith in God, in the church, and even in me. He believes in me. He has faith in me, and I feel a depth of love and commitment from him when he says, Leah, I believe in you. You can do this. He said that to me today. It strengthens me and my faith in him. Dallas is naturally faithful. It's actually his superpower. If you know the Enneagram tool, it is a nine-sided figure used in a particular system of analysis. It represents the spectrum of possible personality types, all nine personality types. Each one represents an aspect of God, a core characteristic of God. Since we are made in God's image, we are image bearers. So every individual carries a piece of who God is. Well, Dallas is a number six on the Enneagram. He bears the image of a number six as a loyalist. That's the name. His natural strength is to be faithful. So I'm so thankful that God gave me Dallas. He knew what I needed before I knew. He has spent more time taking care and providing for me and loving me when I feel so weak and broken. And that is much more than either of us would ever have dreamed because of sickness and injury and all the long-term disability. But he does this not out of duty, but out of love. I am a blessed woman to be in this kind of marriage. But often, even within long-term marriages, faithfulness can be viewed as merely staying faithful just not going outside of the confines of marriage, not really choosing to have faith in the other person, but only just to remain in it, 
out of duty. But is that it? If this was all it could be, it would be very empty, loveless, institutional, and even contractual. And I believe it would get old really fast. There are situations that began faith-filled in marriages, but over time, third parties or other loves of many kinds, such as other individuals or work or addictions or even distractions, but life gets hard and we can lose faith in one another, sometimes even losing faith in God. A wise monk in the novel, The Brothers Karamazov, once said, love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. I think of that often. My personal version of faithfulness can seem shallow at times. I have to work at it. I don't have that natural faithfulness characteristic that Dallas has. It can be more difficult for me to stick with things. It's easier for me to start a project than to persevere and end that project. But I have learned that this is absolutely imperative to remain faithful. So I have to push myself. I often just want to romanticize it because love is a harsh thing, much harsher than in dreams when you have to faithfully choose it. It still remains my choice to faithfully love Dallas, and it can be driven by love or duty. And really, it feels completely different, love or duty. But friends, God designed us to be faithful to one another. He designed us that way. So I just want to add a caveat to these. Faithfulness requires that two people remain faithful to one another. Each individual has a choice in this. We need plenty of grace and patience from our source of all faithfulness, our Heavenly Father, because so often we are faithless. We need a faithful Father. God demonstrated his faithful love for us even when we were still estranged from him. He was faithful even when we were faithless. I love the story that Randy Frazee tells in this chapter on faithfulness. McQuilkin um, resigned as a president of Columbia Bible College in 1990 and realizing he needed to focus his attention on caring for his wife, Muriel, um, who had early onset Alzheimer's disease, he wrote this. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for her in sickness and in health till death do us part. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Our key verse for this chapter is Proverbs 3, 3 and 4. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. So number two of our invitation, faithfulness can either be hostages 
or friends. We can either be hostages or friends. Faithfulness doesn't take hostages on the journey. It takes friends. Truth faithfulness doesn't take hostages. The Greek word for faithfulness is pistos, meaning believing, trusting, faithful, and true. We all have different flavors of faithfulness demonstrated to us over our lives. Some feel like we are more hostages than friends. Our unfaithfulness can reap a harvest of tasteless, even withered, faithlessness fruit. Sometimes we even try to supplement with artificial flavors, like a, like a sort of try harder, carry on out of duty. I'm trapped in this relationship. That's a hostage type of flavor. I think God's flavor of faithfulness is a friendship flavor. It's just and it's true and it's pure. It's unending and unconditional. We can trust him with our hearts. God invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good, like it says in Psalm 34, verse 8. This is good, rich tasting fruit. It's straight from the vine. We have all been invited to a faithful friendship with Jesus. Would you pray with me? If you've lost your taste or have never tasted, but you desire to taste and see the faithful friendship of Jesus, or maybe you're struggling in a relationship that you've lost faith in, maybe you need healing for your heart to regain your faith. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. You can pray these words after me. Dear Jesus, I want to know you as my faithful friend. I want to taste and see that you are good. I need your faithfulness, God. Please do, just as Psalm 51 says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right a loyal, a steadfast, a resolute and faithful spirit within me so that I too can be a faithful friend, that others can see and taste that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.